if we don't fix what we have now, we're going to really, really suffer as technology advances. Hi, I'm Anne Krane. I'm the research manager at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast. Last time, we discussed online gaming platforms and the rise of extremism in the gaming space. This week, we're diving deeper into the topic, examining how gaming culture, storylines and symbols are being appropriated by extremist actors and drilling down into the concept of identity fusion, the phenomenon whereby players emotionally and psychologically merge their real-life identity with that of their in-game avatar or character. We'll then explore how the growing immersiveness of online games and the increasingly blurred line between reality and virtual reality might impact radicalization processes and how stakeholders can get ahead of this threat. Our guests today are Dr. Rachel Coward, a research psychologist and the research director of Take This, an organization whose mission is to decrease the stigma and increase support for mental health in the gaming industry, and Dr. Ashton Kingdon, a lecturer in criminology at the University of Southampton whose work combines criminology, history, and computer science to examine the ways in which extremists utilize technology for recruitment and radicalization. Video games are powerful media which can immerse people deeply in the virtual realities that they provide, so much so that players' real-life identities confuse with their gaming personas. I asked Rachel to explain this concept. So we all have social identities, and these are important, and they identify who we are, and they position ourselves in the world. So for instance, gamer is an identity that people would use to say, I'm a gamer, I associate myself with that community. But typically, our social identities and our individual identities are separate. So when you kind of trigger one or prime one, you're not really priming the other. Identity fusion is when that doesn't happen, when your social identities and your personal identities have fused together. And the best example I can give is my father was a Marine, once a Marine, always a Marine. There's no way to pull out what part of him is not associated with his identity as a, as a military service member. So typically, fusion research has focused on those groups, specifically people in the military and nationalist groups, because fusion tends to happen when you have a lot of shared experiences together, particularly stressful ones, when you have shared values and when you spend a lot of time together. But those elements, to me, sounded a lot like what also happens in games, because what are games, if not a series of trust-building exercises, you know, stressful interactions where you're trying to defeat an enemy or or achieve a common goal. And so with our work, I did in collaboration with the University of Texas at Austin, we looked at identity fusion with gaming communities. And what we found is that when fusion occurs for people in gaming communities, fusion with the gamer identity we see that it also associates itself with what you would call a more extreme profile. So recent aggressive behaviors, lower rates of empathy, the outright endorsement of the tenets of white nationalism. And this is a problem (laughs) because cultures shape the way we see and interact with the world. And if gamer culture is producing this kind of ideological viewpoint, then there are new things to worry about. I wanted to know more specifically about how identity fusion might explain the radicalization process of gamers. Yeah, I think what's really important here is that it can be leveraged as just another on-ramp for these conversations to happen. So if you're immersed in a space in which hate speech is very common, which we know happens in gaming communities, when harassment is very common, which happens in gaming communities, you already have an environment in which these kind of interactions are amenable. So then if you are immersed in them and then you 
you start to fuse with the identity, it starts to change the way that you're saying and interacting with the world. You think that these things are normalized. You think that talking this way or, or thinking about certain groups in a certain way is a normal way of being versus actually being a very extreme ideological viewpoint. And are there any particular groups of gamers that are more vulnerable to identity fusion? It's always really hard to understand, you know, the chicken or the egg. You know, when we looked at our work on identity fusion, we did not see an effect of age or gender. We did see an effect of time played, which we argued was just reflective of the more time you're spending immersed in cultures where hate is normalized, the more likely you're going to think that it is a normalized way of being. It's hard to say. Psychologists will never will never flat out give you a this causes this because there are so many variables. We saw that insecure attachment was a vulnerability. We saw that loneliness was a vulnerability. It's very likely that isolation is a vulnerability as it is just generally for radicalization. So there's no reason to think that it also wouldn't be in the digital space. And what about the type of game being played? Do some games create more conducive environments for blurring the line between one's online and real world identities? Yeah, we we did see a difference in the way that the fusion profile exhibited itself across games. So we had done a series of studies. And in the last one, we looked at Minecraft players versus Call of Duty players. And for those who aren't familiar, Minecraft is an open sandbox game where you can just kind of create and build anything. Call of Duty is a kind of politicized first person shooter that's known for having a more toxic community. So the hypothesis was that the more toxic community, it'd be more likely we'd see this profile. And so when we looked at Minecraft versus Call of Duty, we measured toxicity of the community. Call of Duty was was rated as more toxic. And we did see this profile that I described earlier, less empathy and, and higher racism and more recent aggressive behaviors emerge for Call of Duty players and to a lesser extent Minecraft players. But then we realized it might not just be the toxic community, right? It might be that it's political gameplay. It might be that it's a first person shooter. It might be that it's highly competitive and Minecraft is more collaborative. So there's more work to be done to fully tease out, but I do think it is an important point that the content of the game should be thought of as what we call the mood music of radicalization, because certainly the content can be leveraged in specific ways above and beyond just the social environment, which is what we've been talking about so far. As Rachel just explained, the content of the game matters as it creates the mood music for radicalization. Clearly, games can foster different attitudes and thinking patterns in their players. Ashton picks up on this theme, explaining that games with a powerful historical narrative can be potent tools for extremist propaganda, especially when that history is fictionalized into alt histories. Alt histories are versions of history that are not history at all. They're fabrications of alternate timelines that employ fiction and also selected facts. And these help shape narratives that contradict accepted history itself. And these stories are what can become fodder for those who want to weaponize them. So, for example, nationalists frequently pretend that the medieval past had these kind of secure and impenetrable borders, these static populations with firm identities. And you see this with the overlap between misogynistic propaganda as well, this like locking women in these metaphorical towers, this obsession with nice and shining armor and chivalry and positioning those ideal romantic relationships as being white and heterosexual. And video games have been used to kind of push this narrative out. But none of this has anything to do with the Middle Ages, right? 
they have everything to do with people's interpretation of the Middle Ages. That's why when we talk about medievalism, that term is really referring to like the reimagining and reinvention of that. So we're talking about people that have misinterpreted the Middle Ages and imbuing it with this meaning. And the Middle Ages itself is is plural, right? So there wasn't like one singular identifiable medieval time. Now, the reason that this is interesting with video games is because so many of them now have historical elements embedded into it. It's a really popular phenomenon. And Assassin's Creed is the most popular example of this, I think where it's a historical timeline that you can play out yourself. And because it's so aesthetically pleasing, it becomes really important for propaganda. So when I was presenting at the GNET conference, I was really trying to make it clear that it's not just random people making memes. Like These are organizations that are using video games as their propaganda. Like Europa and Victor, for example, they use this. And it's all part of these aesthetics of whiteness that we see within these games as part of this contemporary framing of the Middle Ages as this overwhelmingly white space, which they claim is the original source of white culture and racial identity. So when we're thinking about how art history is playing this, it's not just that it's differences in interpretation of fact but they're created by intentional distortion. So propagandists will use historical fragments out of context as opposed to the evidence that is there to support their ideologies, right? And they propose these alternate timelines that are reliant on facts that cannot be proven or these inconceivable paths. And they're designed to be biased, right? They're not the product of rational or objective historical inquiry. They're the product of these propagandist mythologies. And the aesthetics of the propaganda is what makes that so powerful. A popular period of history that has been weaponized by extremists is Viking and Norse mythology. I was curious to know from Ashton why these particular stories were increasingly being manipulated by far-right actors to spread extreme ideologies and radicalize players. Extremists and terrorist organizations have always used popular culture as a tool, right? That's really popular and common. Scandinavia history, particularly the era to do with the Vikings, and this is partly to do with the obsessions that we've had with the Vikings in popular culture. So there's so many movies now, TV shows, video games. This idea is being increasingly weaponized and recast by the far right to weaponize and represent this glorious past and promote this idea of Vikings as these heroic warriors who conquer other people. So I'll use Assassin's Creed as the example because that is a really good one. Even the name of the game Valhalla has been used to and utilized by white supremacists to provide an all-white illusion of this medieval Scandinavian past. It's specifically made clear that only men go to Valhalla and the promise of Valhalla offers comfort to those who are fearful in battle and solace to those who are grieving. So it's this kind of greater meaning embodying the Viking warrior spirit. And the imagery that contains these references is consistently manipulated and the artwork is used by those who are kind of inviting an audience to become heroes and fight for their people and their land based on these mythologies. I think 
there were references to Valhalla in the Christchurch manifesto, which really kind of put it back into the public imagination. And as I said, there's this obsession with Viking culture. So I think there's a real danger in in the way that these communities coalesce online and can then feed off of each other. Obviously, gaming is really important and it's a huge cultural medium. So many millions of people are gamers. And I think COVID kind of exacerbated this as well. People have way more time to play video games, to intersect with people. People are bored. They're looking for friends. And there's huge issues with that. One of the platforms I was on was VR chat. And there were kind of servers you could jump in and out of. And there would be Nazi dinner parties and things going on. And like, it's really hard to police that. Like live chat, things like getting in and out of the servers, that's really difficult to try and counter. So I think what I've seen, I can't talk about a kind of direct correlation between images being shared and then acts of violence being committed. But I have definitely seen the intersection between gaming communities and more extreme, overtly racist, anti-Semitic, far-right communities coalescing online. And I think that's when it becomes particularly problematic, particularly when you're thinking about the aesthetics of propaganda as a tool for recruitment and that they might not necessarily be invested in the ideology initially. They might be attracted to the gaming element. And then that is a really good way of hooking people and reeling them in. So I think that's potentially something that is going to get worse. So what does Ashton think should be done to counter the weaponization of games by extremists? This is one of the things that we consistently talk about. What responsibility ethically do do producers, developers have? And Assassin's Creed is a really, really good example because before Valhalla came out, they publicly said, like, we know this is going to be weaponized by the far right and white supremacists. Like, we know this is going to happen. And the far right have their own bespoke games as well. So just like I was saying at the beginning with Al-Qaeda, they have a quest for Bush, you know, there's Syrian warfare, special defense by Hezbollah. The far right have a a collection of games. You've got like KZ Manager, White Law, Ethnic Cleansing, Zog's Nightmare. So they have their own bespoke games, but they also consistently weaponize existing games. So... The argument really comes into it, do they have an ethical responsibility to make their games so that they can't be weaponized like that, right? I don't think that that is going to happen. Personally, my personal opinion is they're trying to make money, so they're going to want to make the most sensationalized version of the game as possible. And they're beautiful. If you pay Assassin's Creed, they are. They're incredible. I think when we're thinking about responsibility, it's important for us as researchers, this is what I do anyway, to actually discuss how racialized narratives operate within the materials. So how are these narratives embedded within the propaganda? And then we have this ethical responsibility to ensure that the knowledge that is created and disseminated around them, so this weaponization of the medieval past is not weaponized against, you know, people of color and marginalized communities. So I don't think we're ever going to be able to stop extremists and propagandists from co-opting video games, particularly historical ones, to help 
embed and reinforce these narratives, but we can refuse to help them, right? We can counter them with the true historical facts. And that's part of the work that I do, right? Countering the art histories and telling people actually how how incorrect these are. It's even like with the runes that they use in the video games, like they use an alphabet that was 500 years at least before the Vikings were even around. It's just things like that. And I think that's part of how we can counter it because it's really difficult to to try and think about the way that they could make games that weren't potentially propaganda, particularly when you have the open world environments, right? So if you think about all of the memes that came out following Red Dead Redemption 2 of like the suffragette, the clan are in that, so that became propaganda. The clan were also in Wolfenstein 2. So there's scenes within that and the open world environment allows people to be able to use it to create their propaganda. And I think that we, we probably won't be able to, to stop that, but we can counter their narratives, particularly the historical ones. And that's why Assassin's Creed is such a good example of the way it's been weaponized, particularly by official organizations as well as, you know, the grassroots. With video game graphics becoming more lifelike each year and developers becoming more and more skilled at storytelling in their games, I asked Rachel how she feels about the future. It's a horrifying thought, actually, <laughs> to think about what's going to happen when games become more immersive and, and what we call have higher visual and behavioral fidelity. You know, there's just a lot of worries in my mind anyways, if you think about the way that games are already being leveraged by extremists. So, for instance, as training grounds. Think about what it would be like if you can actually create a 3D space that resembles one-to-one -one the space in which you are trying to plan an attack, for instance. Think about the team building that's going to happen when you can actually be visually, physically next to each other, engaging in shared activities. I think it's going to be magnified from what we see now. And I think if we don't fix what we have now, we're going to really, really suffer as technology advances. So what does Rachel think should be done? I think that we are really at a time in which we're long overdue for more education about digital literacy. Because the thing about radicalization in games is that games tend to work on reactive moderation. So if something bad happens and you say, oh, I saw something bad and I'm going to report it. But radicalization feels good. You're making friends, essentially, is what it feels like. And that's not something that's ever going to be reported. Like, oh, I met some cool people playing games today. So I think we need a vast amount of money invested in digital literacy and what this looks like and what grooming looks like. You know, it really is a similar pathway to child grooming that we see with child sexual exploitation. It's just grooming for violence. So if parents can know what the warning signs are, if children can know what to do if something feels a little bit off, you know, we don't have any kind of baseline of information in and around this as far as I know. I finished by asking Rachel where one might turn to educate themselves on the issue she described. If you're looking for more information and you want to learn more about games and extremism, it is a growing kind of niche area of expertise. There is a group, the Extremism and Games Research Network, you can EGRN, you can find them on Google, which is a great place to go for resources. There's also GNET, which is um, the GIFCT academic wing, GNET. They have published several pieces now about games and extremism. So if you're looking to learn more about 
how this is all working and, and what the state of the research looks like. Those are some really good resources to check. Thank you to our guests, Rachel and Ashton, for their input in today's episode. If you want to learn more or get involved in the Extremism and Gaming Research Network, we'll share resources in the show notes. If you want to learn more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism. I'm Anne Kranen. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. And if you enjoy listening, please rate, leave a review and share the episode as that really helps new people find us. This is an OG podcast production. Executive producer is Archie McFarlane. Produced by Adrian Dangor. Edit and sound design by Oli Giyu. Music by Rowan Bishop.